Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name is Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thanks for listening today. Ben, what are we watching today? Well, we've kind of looped back around in a cyclical way because we are back to the career of Paul Vigna, ah. uh, who you may remember from our Student of Prague episode. Yeah, he was really good in that movie. Yeah, so when he was on location shooting Student of Prague, he heard the local legend of the Golem of Prague, and while Vigna himself was not Jewish, he heard the legend while engaging with the city's Jewish community for the cemetery scenes, Mm -hmm. and became very fascinated with it, and that eventually led uh, to tonight's movie, Der Golem, Vierendi Weltkam, which is German for the golem, how he came into the world. Ah. And uh, perhaps, Sarah, you would like to tell us a little bit about how the golem came into the world. (laughs) Sure. So we've both seen this movie before. Yes, that's true. And you and I have actually debated a lot about whether we should have this movie be reviewed by us. Yeah, it's... It's got an interesting history. Um, It shows up a lot on lists of horror movies, but I think that's by association more than its own merits. Mm -hmm. Um, We can perhaps discuss that a little bit more Later. later. Okay, cool. No worries. Before I talk about the myth of the golem, I just want to preface this with saying that Ben and I are not Jewish. Yeah, we are. We are both Gentiles. So it was very interesting learning about this myth, and I've done my best to write down pronunciations, but it was difficult to find original Hebrew pronunciations of some of these names, and a lot of these are from Prague as well, so it was, do I go with, like, original Hebrew? A Hebrew pronunciation, or a Czech pronunciation, or a Yiddish Mm -hmm. pronunciation, probably... To be honest, most likely it's a Yiddish, but uh, we aren't experts, uh, so no offense intended if we mispronounce any of the names. Yeah. The myth of the golem, it's actually something that seems to pop up in a lot of different cultures, I'll say, and different uh, sources of literature. So the whole idea is that the golem is an animated anthropomorphic being um, made from clay or mud brought to life by magic. So, so like Wonder Woman. <laughs> Uh, not quite, but maybe. Okay, because, like, <laughs> everything you just said sounds like Wonder Woman to me, but, uh... <laughs> well, I was thinking, uh, there, there's a lot of similarities between this myth and the story of Frankenstein. That's true, yeah. hmm Uh, so that's really what I was meaning, mm-hmm. rather than Wonder Woman. Um, yeah, the idea of the golem is kind of supposed to be this unfinished human being that's unfinished because God has not given life... It's us making life? Right. And it makes sense that it's made from clay, because in Genesis, Adam is formed out of dirt. Yeah, Adam is actually given as one of the earliest examples in uh, scripture of the golem. Okay. Which was kind of interesting, and I think it's because of that association. Mm-hmm. The thing that kept popping up, which was really interesting, and maybe I'll talk about it a little bit later, is that the golem 
specifically cannot speak. Mm. Um, and that's because the power of speech gives him a soul. Oh, okay. As far as uh, the earliest description in history or written records, the myth goes that the golem was created by Rabbi Eliyahu of Hilm, who lived uh, 1550 to 83, and the power for the golem came from this amulet necklace he wore. Okay. Um, the story was expanded later by Rabbi Jacob Emden in uh, 1748, who instead of talking about an amulet necklace, described it as a, a holy name written on the golem's forehead. That's that's more the version I'm familiar with, the Hebrew word on the forehead. Yeah. So that's the oldest description, but the most common classic narrative, and the one that comes from Prague, uh, actually ties the golem to uh, this really big deal kind of guy named Rabbi Yehuda Leib ben Betzalel. Yeah, I couldn't find a... Uh, here's how to say this. It was, like, written out mm-hmm. uh, with, like, where to put the emphasis on, so I'm pretty sure I'm doing that right. Uh, he's kind of known as the uh, Maharel of Prague, but I couldn't find out what that meant. Oh, uh, Maharel is a, a contraction word. So Maharel is a acronym. It's a Hebrew phrase. I'm not going to try and say the Hebrew phrase because I don't have the pronunciation, but it translates as our teacher, Rabbi Laib. Ah, yeah. So it's a, an acronym of this phrase that starts with the vowels ma, ha, ra, and then ends with the L. Mm. So you stick the L on the end and it's Maharel. Interesting. Yeah, so this guy, he lived in the mid to late 1500s, so right in the 16th century, and the classic myth with the golem is that um, he created the golem to defend the Prague ghetto from anti-Semitic attacks. Hmm. Along with this myth is uh, that Rudolph II, the Holy Roman Emperor, ordered the Jews in Prague either killed or removed, and the golem was made of clay from the river, and the golem could become invisible and summon dead spirits. Which cool. is interesting. He came to life because of this capsule with magic words written on it that was inserted into him. and uh, It's placed in his mouth, right? Yeah. And the rabbi needed to remove the capsule uh, Friday night, so that way he was sure that the golem would rest on the Sabbath. There's different stories, all with this kind of origin, but with different endings. So the golem falling in love, uh, being rejected, and getting really upset, uh, or forgetting to rest on the Sabbath and bad things happening as a result of that. All of these different endings kind of end with this murderous rampage. Okay. (laughs) Even though there's that murderous rampage, um, a lot of them also have the ending of the golem being stored in an attic or being buried somewhere, waiting to come back to life to defend the Jewish people again. So it's sort of, you got like a bit of the Frankenstein thing there with like the hubris of creating this life form and it getting out of your control, but it's kind of mixed with like almost like an Arthurian Mm -hmm. kind of thing of this guy being like a culture hero that will one day return. Yeah, yeah, it was commonly... Or as part of this myth, the golem was stored in, this is the translated name, the Old New Synagogue, which is in Prague. Um, it's currently the oldest active synagogue. Mm. Um, so it was stored in that synagogue's attic to be awoken uh, in need, or it was stolen and hidden in a nearby Jewish graveyard. A recent addition to this whole uh, mythology, mm. which I thought was really fun, 
the, it tells of a, a Nazi going to the attic, finding the golem and stabbing the golem. Uh, the golem's not alive or anything. Stabs the golem and the Nazi dies instead. Oh, interesting. Yeah, which thinking of it symbolically is is something really interesting of like this Jewish folk tale and Nazis trying to kill it, but they get wiped out instead. Sure, and it, and it sort of makes sense as like a folkloric thing to address the sort of most obvious question, which is why didn't this golem defend Prague during World War II, and sort of addresses it in a way that means that, you know, we're not trying to make up some story that it came to life when clearly it didn't, but sort of still addresses the topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you hit the nail on the head of hubris being an ongoing theme, with the golem taking instructions so literally that it ends up attacking the master, or uh, goes on a rampage, and it seems to really tie with the Frankenstein themes, like mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier. A few things that I found super interesting is that whole thing with the golem not being able to speak because speech would make it human or give it a soul. Mm-hmm. And the reason I found that interesting, again, coming from someone who's a Gentile, when I think of Jewish tradition, um, obviously like the bar mitzvah kind of comes to mind. And what also comes to mind is the... I guess, singing, uh, or singing from the Torah. Mm -hmm. And so I think of, like, you know, you have this kind of chanting and singing of religious text, and the idea of, you know, a nomadic culture whose histories lie in oral storytelling and passing these stories uh, to generation to generation without being able to write them down. Mm -hmm. And then this figure of mythology not having the ability to speak himself. Um, right. I thought that was just something that was really interesting. For sure, yeah. That was pretty much it with the myth, but to just kind of talk about um, this rabbi a bit more, Yehuda Leib Ben Betzelo, he he's a big deal because um, he was a rabbi and a Torah scholar, and he was a huge influence on Jewish philosophy. So he was a real guy. He was a real guy. Okay, he's real, but like the golem's uh, a folkloric element. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. He did a lot of things, but from what I could gather from my research, one way that he was most influential is making Jewish philosophy accessible to the average educated reader, so using accessible terms and scenarios to yeah, make the Torah and the Jewish philosophy more accessible. Okay. And one thing that was really neat is the guy's name, especially the lo part or the leib part in uh, Hebrew pronunciation, is associated with lion. Okay, like which, etymologically, you mean? Yeah, uh, so it makes him sound like a real badass. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And did it just kind of set the scene for the Jewish ghetto as well? Because uh, I thought it would be really good to learn about the setting of where this myth seems to have kind of taken place. Sure, that's, yeah. So the Jewish ghetto in 16th century Prague, it grew in population almost exponentially during this time with people immigrating there from Germany, Austria, and Spain, Mm -hmm. uh, Jewish people immigrating. Um, It was actually one-fourth of the population. Wow. Uh, So it was really huge. And I was surprised at this. So according to Wikipedia, (laughs) Maximilian II and Rudolf II, uh, the Holy Roman emperors, their reigns were considered golden ages for this Jewish ghetto because the ghetto was largely left alone and pretty autonomous. Like they Mm -hmm. had their own uh, civil court, they had uh, their own flag, Mm -hmm. things like that. 
this kind of ended uh, at the end of the 16th century when Empress Maria Theresa uh, took reign and uh, expelled the Jews from the, the ghetto. So I, I was surprised at this, that it was considered like the Golden Age, because the golem was used to protect the ghetto from anti-Semitic attacks, and it always seemed to take place during Rudolf II's reign. I mean, it might be that, you know, because uh, this particular rabbi, the Maharal, was so well-known, and this period was so well-known that it's just an easy period to latch the folklore onto. It might also be if you're coming from, you know, if you're telling this story in the 17th century or the 18th century or the 19th century, and you're telling the story, you know, in a time of greater oppression of that Jewish population, it might serve as an answer to the question, why was there this golden age? Why was the, the ghetto fairly autonomous? Mm-hmm. And the answer can be, well, they had a golem protecting them. Right, so it, it it might serve as a folkloric answer to a historical question. That's interesting. Yeah, what I was thinking was they had this period of feeling safe and autonomous in their communities and wanting to protect that, even with the idea of a, a possible threat. Mm-hmm. I mean, like there was still anti-Semitism, but the one particular example that kept popping up is the blood libel, which I wasn't sure what that was, but it's the idea that Christian kids' blood was taken for Jewish rituals. The reason it seemed that that kept popping up as like the most common example of anti-Semitism in this time frame is, uh, I, I, there were multiple articles I read, but one of them said that this ghetto in Prague was a center for Jewish mysticism. Oh, sure. So you've got a lot of what would be labeled as like occult or mystic study happening, which, like, the 1500s is right on this sort of borderland between that sort of stuff being considered magic versus being considered science. Mm -hmm. It's the same period as Faust, for example, historically. And the fact is that you had a lot of people who, if they were doing what we would now consider, like, chemistry or science, being regarded as occultists or mystics, and thus viewed with a fairly high degree of suspicion by other Mm -hmm. people. Yeah, I also came across how the ghetto had many professions and, like, a huge diversity of professions from mathematicians, astronomers, geographers, scholars, philosophers, artists. So I think that's why it was considered a center for Jewish mysticism. Mm -hmm. And then that would lead to the anti-Semitic idea of this blood libel Mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, the the reign of Rudolf II in general was considered like a high point for occult and mystic arts, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, he really encouraged uh, astrologers and alchemists and stuff, and all of that kind of stuff is, is generally nonsense, but has side effects of its research that produces, you know, genuine scientific knowledge, just sort of as a side effect. Rudolf, as Holy Roman Emperor, reigned also as King of Bohemia, Uh, and had his court in Prague, which was in the Kingdom of Bohemia at the time. And his sort of encouragement of this kind of mysticism earned him a lot of friends in that Bohemian court, but it also made him kind of a shitty king, and he ended up getting into a lot of, like, really bad wars that ended up kind of wrecking his whole reign, because he was good at being kind of this patron of the arts, but not good at, like, politics. Mm. 
Yeah, so that kind of sets the tone, uh, gives you an idea of the setting for where this myth would have originated mm-hmm. before Paul Wegener heard of it centuries later. <laughs> yeah, you know, he he heard this legend, and it's interesting to say that, you know, in the time period where this legend is set, Prague is this court city in Bohemia, uh, which is a kingdom that is part of the Holy Roman Empire. When Wegener heard the myth, he was working on the film Student of Prague. That was in 1913, and Prague was in the Austrian Empire. By the time this film that we're watching tonight was made, it was 1920, and World War I had happened, and Prague was now the capital of Czechoslovakia. Uh, so a lot of different cultural heritages kind of coming into play in this city. Mm-hmm. After hearing the myth in 1913, he really wanted to make a film based on it, So in 1915, he teamed up with an Austrian-Jewish screenwriter named Henrik Galin to co-write, co-direct, and co-star in Der Golem, uh, which was a horror film. Uh, Der Golem was set in modern times. It starred Galin as an antiques dealer who discovers the legendary golem of Prague, uh, and the golem is played by Paul Wigner. And this antiques dealer brings it back to life to be his servant, and then the golem falls in love with his wife, and she does not return his affection, and the golem goes on a rampage and commits a series of murders. Mm. So this is sort of a very classic horror movie setup. Yeah, you know? it has like the rampaging monster. Yeah, it's, it's the ancient monster from a minority culture going on a spurned lover-oriented killing spree, <laughs> which is basically your setup for the mummy, Frankenstein, and Dracula. If you're watching the, like, Universal Studios versions. <laughs> I like that that's a way to describe a genre. Right. <laughs> Der Golem was very successful. It got a U.S. release under the title Monster of Fate. But unfortunately, all prints are lost. Oh, that's really disappointing. Yeah, so there's no way to actually see this early horror classic, which is why uh, we did not watch Der Golem. Uh, we will be watching instead Der Golem? <laughs> What happened was um, Vigna ended up making a second Golem film, this time without Henrik Galin, in 1917. And this was Der Golem und die Tänzerin. But this was a comedy. It's a rom-com sequel. What? Uh, also set in modern times about the Golem falling in love with a dancing girl. What? <laughs> this film is also lost. I am not... As upset about that one being lost <laughs> as the original, I guess, if you want to call it that. Do you think perhaps it's similar to The Student of Prague being labeled a romantic drama and then turning out to be a, a horror movie? Yeah, it is It is very explicitly said to be a comedy. It's, it's said to be a parody of oh. the original Golem film, essentially. What Vigna really wanted to do was he wanted to tell the legend of the Golem as he originally heard it, But that would be a very costly period piece with a lot of special effects and unique sets. And Wigner's films up to this point had all been indie films Mm. uh, from Student of Prague onwards. So finally, in 1920, he partnered with Universum Film AG, or UFA, which was one of Germany's biggest studios, Mm. in order to produce this film, Der Golem, Wie Ehren die Welt kam, which is a prequel to his original Golem film, explaining the Golem's origins. 
So, you know, our modern Hollywood conception of, like, making a popular film and then milking it with, like, prequels and sequels and remakes and reboots is not <laughs> not a modern phenomenon at all, in the slightest. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I wanted to really get into this idea of, like, is this film a horror film or not? I mean, certainly we'll talk about it more after we've watched the movie. But, like, this this particular film, The Golem, How He Came Into the World is often listed as a horror film. But I think it's largely just because it's a German silent film from the 1920s with expressionist sets and a monster. And also because, like, it's a prequel to this earlier Golem film that is explicitly a horror film. But this movie, because it's just a straight adaptation of the Jewish legend, is really just more of a period fantasy folktale adaptation. I, I don't really think there's a lot of actual horror elements in it. It's sort of horror by association. Mm-hmm. But... We can maybe discuss that after we've watched the movie and it's sort of a bit more fresh in our minds. Yeah, because when did we originally watch it? Like, at least two years ago? Yeah, it was um, October 2015 when we watched it. Right. Yeah, to be fair, it's a little fuzzy in our brains. Um, We weren't thinking in terms of, like, is this a horror movie when we watched it? Yeah. we have been with these previous films. Sure. I mean, my memory of it, it seems like it wasn't, really. But I think that... You know, and I've talked about this in pre- in previous episodes that German expressionist films just sort of get conflated with horror, even though they're not really equivalent. Mm-hmm. What's been cool with watching these earlier films is seeing how the horror movie genre it has been developing and kind of morphing. Mm-hmm. And so now with that kind of better understanding of the genre developing, I'm curious if this will still if I will still think that this doesn't fit, or if I'll be a bit more lenient about my genre lines. Sure. The film definitely fits into German Expressionism. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very well regarded for its Expressionist sets, which were done by famed German architect Hans Polzig. And the film also was very highly regarded for its cinematography, uh, which is by the master German cinematographer Karl Freund. Uh, and Freund was just at the start of his career at this point, but his is a name that we're probably going to see a few more times down the way. Uh, he became one of F.W. Murnau's preferred cinematographers. He did Metropolis for Fritz Lang. Oh. Uh, he later does Dracula for Todd Browning. And way, way later in his career, Freund invented the three-camera sitcom filming method when he was lead cinematographer for I Love Lucy. <laughs> Quite the the development of one guy. Yeah. <laughs> From um, the golem to I Love Lucy. Mm-hmm. Uh, as with his previous films, Vigna worked with another director, uh, in this case Ufa contractor Carl Buza, to focus on the technical aspects of the film while Vigna got to focus on story and character and acting and theme and mood, uh, as well as uh, just, you know, his own performance, because Vigna would again be donning the golem makeup for this role, so this is his third time as the golem. Mm. The film itself was a huge success. Uh, it was highly praised as an example of German Expressionism. Uh, it cemented Wigner's reputation as an auteur. It was released in the U.S. to high acclaim. Critics compared it favorably to Caligari. It also did substantial business in Jewish-run theaters in ethnic Jewish neighborhoods in the U.S. That's cool. So where can people watch this movie? How are we watching this movie? As with any film made before 1923, The Golem, How He Came Into the World is public domain. Uh, So there's a lot of different releases from a lot of different companies floating around. Uh, We're going to be watching the one 
that is the YouTube restoration from the F.W. Murnau Film Restoration Institute that was released through Kino Video. And so that uh, our listeners can more easily follow along, we've also started up a YouTube playlist, the Scream Scene playlist, which uh, we've linked to on our Tumblr page and which you can use to watch the versions of the films that we've been watching. Uh, If you want to get a hold of this film for your own collection, uh, it's been released on DVD several times, but the best release if you're in North America is the one from Kino Video International. Uh, Kino tends to be one of the better sources for silent cinema if you're buying in North America, uh, and they've got a really good restored version of The Golem. There's also DVD releases from Alpha Video, but never ever buy a DVD release from Alpha Video, ever. They're terrible. Why are they terrible? Uh, They generally just tend to put no effort in at all, so you get like bad like 16 millimeter prints of films that have been like badly transferred to DVD and then like slapped onto like a cheap disc. So yeah, if you are looking for this film, uh, go for the Kino Restored Authorized Edition, Uh, and if you're looking on YouTube, uh, go for the version with the F.W. Murnau Restoration logo at the start of it. So folks, you're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back we will discuss whether this is a horror movie or not. (laughs) (laughs) We'll find out. See you guys on the other side. everybody welcome back to scream scene we just finished watching der golem by er in die welt kam by paul vegana can you say that five times fast nope <laughs> i uh i feel like right now we like really need to learn german yeah but like come the like 60s and 70s we'll really need to learn italian and come like the 90s and Ots will probably need to learn Japanese. Like, what country's doing a lot of horror is going to shift over time, is what I'm saying. Yeah. So what did you think of the film? Well, this is our second time seeing this for both of us, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, overall, I, I still enjoyed it. I think I liked it more this time because I knew what I was getting into watching it this time. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, I wasn't sure if I enjoyed it more this time because I don't even remember why I didn't like it the first time we watched it. But I think because I had things to think about as we watched it rather than just like watching a movie. Well, and like we didn't know what to expect. We were just kind of watching a bunch of old horror movies and this movie doesn't really... Set you up for anything. It doesn't. It's not what you think it's going to be. Like like the movie's divided into five chapters, right? Yeah. So, like, you'd kind of expect that what happens in, like, the tail end of chapter four would happen, like, way earlier in the movie, if it was a horror movie. And even if you're familiar with the story of the Golem of Prague, when you hear that, like, oh, the Golem was made by a rabbi to protect the ghetto from, like, pogroms, you'd assume that, like, then the big climax would be, like, the Golem versus a bunch of, like, Gentile soldiers or something. But, like, that doesn't really happen either. The way he saves the ghetto is, like, a 
totally weird thing that happens midway through the movie. Like, that's not even the climax, right? Yeah. So, like, overall, it's just kind of a weird movie that isn't quite what you'd expect from any angle. Yeah. I think I had more appreciation for the German Expressionist sets because uh, for the Caligari episode, I delved into all of that Oh, sure. I mean, like, part of the point of doing this podcast almost is to show you know, how much you can get out of these old films when you've got the right kind of context going in Mm -hmm. culturally and historically. Yeah, because you're always going to enjoy a piece of media more if you understand the context around it. I think, anyways. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's just because we both come from... We've both gone through the Academy, but, like, (laughs) I, I really do feel that way. Yeah. Um, Do we want to give a quick summary of the plot of the film? Yeah, of course. So, the golem, how he came to be... uh, (laughs) How he came into the world. How he came into the world. I think you're thinking of, like, the Batman (laughs) subtitle, like, the Batman, like, who he is and how he came to be. The Batman? Yeah, that's from Batman Year One. Oh, I don't... That's like not what titles. I was thinking of okay. at all. That's what I've been thinking of this entire time, is just <laughs> Batman Year One, because one of the issue titles is uh, Who He Is and How He Came to Be, which is a reference to like the original origin story by Kane and Finger from 1940. So in The Golem... Right. <laughs> there's five chapters... How does it even start? So, right, uh, so the Rabbi Lowe, I guess? Yeah, Rabbi Laib is Labe. looking through his telescope, and the stars aren't looking good for the Jews. He decides that they need a protector, so he like goes and delves into his arcane lore to figure out how to make a golem. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the Emperor has sent this dandy fop knight named Florian to deliver the message to the Jews that they all gotta get the heck out of the ghettos. Uh, they ain't welcome there anymore. Mm-hmm. Florian gets all buddy-buddy with uh, the rabbi's daughter, Miriam. Yeah, they're they're both real thirsty. Uh, <laughs> like, they have a lot of parts of this movie where it's just the two of them looking at each other while panting heavily. Yeah, that's, uh, that's code for uh, flirting. <laughs> <laughs> so... The rabbi makes this golem out of clay, mm-hmm. but he has to get the magic word to bring it to life. Yeah, from evil spirits. Yeah, from Astaroth, yeah. Uh, the evil spirit. <clears throat> yeah, so he has to summon Astaroth, the demon, to get the magic Hebrew word. And it's sort of like a weird combo of a lot of different golem traditions, because like the golem tradition I'm the most familiar with is you write the word on its forehead. Mm -hmm. Before the break, we talked about it having an amulet, and we also talked about the word being like a capsule that you put in its mouth, and here you write the word down, you put it in the amulet, and then it wears the amulet. Yeah, just kind of a mix of all three. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the special effects with all of that stuff was really, really cool. Yeah, definitely the standout sequence in the film is the the sequence of summoning Astaroth, Mm -hmm. for sure. So after he brings the golem to life... There's a little bit of just, like, the golem's the rabbi's new servant. Mm-hmm. Um, and everyone in the in the ghetto freaking out about this clay monster walking around. Yes. Um, Which is so funny, because he's supposed to be their protector. Right. But they, they're just like, I don't know about this. So, um, the rabbis managed to convince the emperor 
to give him an audience on the fact that, like, he's been the Emperor's, like, chief astrologer for a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the Emperor invites him over to the castle for the Rose Festival, and the rabbi takes the golem along, I I guess just for, like, show and tell, to, like, impress the Emperor. Yeah. And so because Florian knows that the rabbi is going to be out of town... Yeah, he uh, books it back to the ghetto to get real buddy-buddy... With Miriam. Yeah, they uh, they definitely have sex. Yeah, so, like it shows them asleep in the same bed. Yeah. Like the morning after. So the rabbi goes to the Rose Festival and he basically like walks into the court and is like, Hey, my emperor, I've got this dude I made from clay who follows all my will. But and- I can't tell you any more about that. No, but I, <laughs> but I got this guy uh, who I made all by myself. And the emperor's like, oh yeah, for sure, cool. What else you got? <laughs> Very hard to impress the emperor, I suppose. Yeah, so the rabbi puts on, like, a a weird, like, vision. He he projects, like, images of famous Jewish patriarchs in the air as part of, like, a magic show. And, like, the one rule was please don't laugh or talk during the performance. So the, the emperor's jester tells a joke and everybody laughs. And that causes the Jewish patriarchs, I guess, to cause the castle to start crumbling down? Yeah, so, like, everyone's gonna die. So the emperor's like, if you can save me, I'll pardon all your people. So the rabbi's like, golem! And the golem, like, comes over and holds up the ceiling for everyone uh, and prevents the castle from collapsing. And so the Jewish people are pardoned. Yay! And we're, like, halfway through the movie. Everything's going super well. Yeah, the story's over. (laughs) Um... The rabbi comes back with the golem. He's like, tell everyone in the city, uh, we're pardoned. Uh, everything's coming up, Millhouse. Meanwhile, the rabbi's apprentice, who, like, I think might be my favorite character because of, like, how wide his eyes can go with freaking out about the golem and everything. He's, he's like young Professor Snape, if you want to <laughs> imagine what this guy looks like. Oh, it's so great. So he goes up to wake Miriam to be like, girl, we're pardoned, let's go party at the temple with everyone else. And she's like, nothing else to see in this bedroom, certainly not a guy in this bedroom. Yeah, don't, don't come in here. Uh, I've got certainly not a dude hanging out with me here. And then Florian just is like, talking? I like. Yeah, like he's, he just blows their cover. He's just like, hey babe, who's at the door? <laughs> and the apprentice is like, what the fuck? There's a strange man in your room. And, uh, oh, we forgot. Um, so once the rabbi comes back home, the golem starts to get all angry. Oh, yeah. Well, because, like, the, the rabbi's like, all right, cool. Uh, I don't need no golem no more. Uh, time to turn you off. And the golem's like, yeah, no, I don't think so, buddy. And, uh, <laughs> like, comes after him. And so the rabbi has to, like, emergency shutdown mode on the golem because he's... He doesn't want to not be alive. Yeah, and there's like this title card of when the planet Uranus moves into the house of planets, uh, whatever you've created returns back to the ownership of Esteroth. Yeah, like the rabbi checks like his like dungeon master's guide and it's like, hey man, like your magic's gonna go bad. But he's got the golem turned off, so it's fine. So he goes to go to the Thanksgiving Day prayers for they're giving thanks for like the fact that they're, you know, not getting like tossed out of the ghetto and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but then the apprentice, when like he finds out there's a guy in Miriam's room, runs down, activates the golem, and he's like, Go get this dude, throw him out. And 
The golem takes that to be cool. Yeah, I'll uh, chase him around the house up to the roof and toss yeah, up to him the top of the tower and toss him off the top of this tower, uh, and he'll just be dead. Be dead. Uh, so, so he does that. The apprentice is like, "Cool, well, we're done here, right?" And the golem's like, "Nope," and starts like menacing everybody and lights the entire building on fire and carts off with Miriam. Yeah, carts off as in drags her by her braids. Yeah, it's, it's pretty unsettling. Yeah, I'm. Just thankful that it's a wig and it's not her actual hair. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, so then the golem goes on this rampage for not a whole lot of reasons besides just going on a rampage, I guess. And not for very long either. Like, basically, he just carts Miriam out of the house he himself set on fire, takes her to safety. The well, we end. see people dead in the street, uh, uh, like where his rampage went. Yeah, okay. I mean, Presumably like, people being like, what are you doing to that girl going to try to rescue her and right. just smacking them. But we don't actually really see that. And the thing that gets yeah. like more attention is the fact that the fire that the golem set in the rabbi's house like has spread to the rest of the city, mm-hmm. which leads the rabbi to have to cast the fire spell yeah. to exercise the fire. Right. From the city, like it was a demon. And that's successful. Yeah. So uh, and job. then he finds Miriam and she's fine. Yep. Uh, and then uh, his apprentice is like, hey, Miriam, so like that Gentile you were you were boning, he's like super dead and like totally burnt to a crisp. So like if you don't say anything about him, I won't say anything about him. Well, what I did like <laughs> is he opens that conversation up with like, Miriam, can you ever forgive me? He, it seemed like he recognized that his, uh, I'll say, jumping the gun. His actions were shitty. Yeah. <laughs> And he's like, you know what, please forgive me for being shitty. Uh, sorry, your boyfriend's dead, but I won't say anything. Yeah, let's let's just pretend that never happened. Yeah. The, the other thing is that, like, you know, he tells the rabbis that the golem's on a rampage, like the apprentice, but he, he leaves out the fact that it's his fault. Yeah. Like, he shows up and he's like, yeah, that golem of yours just suddenly started killing people and lighting things on fire. I totally didn't tell him to do any of that. Well, he doesn't tell him to... <laughs> do that and as far as he knows like he doesn't know the golem is turning evil right right so after the golem takes miriam to safety he kind of calms down and and uh, just goes to like play with a bunch of gentile children who are hanging out outside he he has this expression of like nothing for me here now i guess (laughs) uh because my uh rabbi dad said that he didn't need me anymore to protect the ghetto. So he opens up these giant doors and um, scares these Gentile children and is just, like, holding one of the kids. And then the kid takes out the amulet, which turns him off. And then they're just, like, hanging around him when all of the Jewish community rush out to get the golem. Yeah, they're like, oh, here's our golem. Left Um, him outside, we did. And then they (laughs) just take him back in and then the movie ends. But I think one of the kids still has the amulet. Uh, maybe. It was a little hard to see. Yeah, we never see it get dropped. We never see close-up of the kid dropping it, but there's the close-up of the kid holding it. Yeah, that's true. But yeah, then, like, all of the the community come up and grab, like, there's, like, ten people having to lift this clay thing (laughs) and bring it back in, and then that's the end. Yeah. The thing that struck me about the movie watching it in the context of what we've watched so far is how much more expensive this clearly was. Yeah. The special effects were clearly, like... Like, the lightning stuff was, like, painted on. Yeah, it's it's really good. Like, if there's a scene to see... If there's a standout scene to see in this film, it's the, the Astros summoning scene. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I think they probably built the entire town. Yeah, like the entire ghetto is like a constructed expressionist style set. Everyone's in, you know, elaborate period costumes. There's tons of, you know, elaborate makeup. I mean, for the golem especially, but everybody else as well. Um, Huge crowd scenes. mm -hmm, Like this is a big, serious production. Wigner's probably the standout acting performance, I think, I would classify a lot of the rest of the acting in this movie as kind of hammy, but, like, this is a big movie. Yeah. I I also thought the cinematography was really great. Mm-hmm. There was no point where I felt like this is a stage play setup. Sure. Uh, we had close-ups. We had perspective shots of, like, looking down from the window. Mm-hmm. Yeah, looking sh- down on, on Florian, his spine broken on the ground. Like Yeah, there's there's POV shots from the Golem's POV. There's there's yeah. all kinds of really complex photography happening in this film. Mm-hmm. I, I thought, like, I thought the sets were really great, but if listeners remember the German Expressionist episode with Caligari when I went into, like, this huge in-depth, let me tell you all about German Expressionism, a big part of it is showing the inner madness of a character, and there's none of that in here. It feels more like aesthetic versus philosophy. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I have a whole big deal about the question of whether this is a horror film or not, Mm. but I think... It's also worth saying this isn't really even an expressionist film. I mean, certainly the sets are expressionist in their aesthetic, but, like, the costumes aren't, and the story isn't, and the acting isn't. Yeah. So it's really just kind of there's this one style thing, and I think because it's got that stylistic element, and because it's German, and because it's a silent film, and because it's from the 20s, and because it's got a monster, it just gets lumped into this German expressionist horror categorization that it doesn't really fit to. Yeah, I feel like the German expressionist sets are meant to lend itself to the mystical Jewish ghetto kind of Mm. look, versus like how a ghetto would actually look. Mm, Sure, it's... It's kind of exotic otherness. Yeah, so does that, (laughs) so maybe that can segue into the next thing I want to talk about, perhaps, Mm. which is how Judaism is treated in this film. Yeah, I mentioned this in the beginning, how Ben and I are both not Jewish. There's really only so much we can say whether this is, like, how positive of a representation, I guess. Yeah, I mean, certainly I would be very interested in hearing a Jewish take on this film. Mm-hmm. The thing that, like, is worth discussing is, like, I don't think this film is really anti-Semitic, mm. but I do think it indulges in Semitic stereotyping. For sure. And I think that, you know, while the film is sympathetic to the Jews, and while the film's even told from their point of view all the way through, it still others them. Yeah. I kept coming back to this when we watched The Student of Prague, that the use of the Jewish cemetery there mm-hmm. felt like, oh, what an exotic place to meet. Yeah. Uh, and here it felt like, oh, what an exotic setting and myth to use. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it definitely. So something that's maybe worth explaining for a bit of context if you see this film is the relationship between Jewish stereotypes and the traditional stereotypical imagery of wizards and sorcerers. Mm. I think that really cuts to the core of a lot of what's going on in this movie. You know, the, the, the fairy tale wizard is like a dude 
with a pointed hat and like a long nose and like a long beard wearing robes with stars all over them. Mm-hmm. And like when you've studied medieval history, you start to realize that like, oh, that's all Semitic characteristics of, you know, the Jewish population of Europe. The pointed hat was a symbol of Jewishness. The stars are the star of David. The beard is, you know, a a typical kind of rabbi thing. The long nose is a Semitic stereotype. All of that stuff. And certainly, you know, you get an overlap. We talked before the break about this being the, the golden age of Jewish mysticism when this was set. Yeah. And that kind of mysticism, and we talked a bit about, you know, astrology and occultism and those kind of things that are seen as being, you know, magic. That overlaps with Kabbalah, you know, which is Jewish occult mysticism. And that, of course, overlaps with the practice of creating a golem, which is kind of a uh, a magical act. Yeah, he literally has a book of uh, necromancy. Right. And the way that this film ends up portraying Judaism, it doesn't feel like a religion. The movie ends up kind of portraying this Jewish ghetto... Like it was like the wizard city. Yeah, like Diagon Alley. Yeah, like everyone looks like they're wizards. Everyone knows what the fire spell is. Right, he's gonna, he's, yeah, the idea that like they're not going to pray if the ghetto's on fire. Instead, like the rabbi's going to perform this fire spell. Like even the portrayal of Rabbi Leib as, you know, not a learned religious scholar but essentially as a sorcerer. Yeah, like this he is... has um, an apprentice. Mm-hmm. He has all of this... I kind of read it as, like, maybe chemistry sets, but, like... He's got some alchemy yeah, stuff Yeah, some going alchemy on. stuff. He has uh, the big tower so he can look up to the stars, and then a basement where he's building the golem. Yeah, he's, he's a wizard. Yeah. And, like, you know, he's the court astrologer to the emperor, and he can conjure visions of the Jewish patriarchs that appear in the court as if they were watching a movie. Yeah. Like, that's not... Rabbis can't do that. You know that, right, Paul Wigner? Like, Jews aren't magic. I mean, at least it's not like all the rabbis are doing it. It's very clear that it's specifically Rabbi Leb who can sure. do it. Um, so... But it, it's, it's still like the depiction of Judaism is it's depicted more like a cult of magicians yeah. than a religion of people. This even carries through to like some of the weird terminology that gets used in the film. The fact that he's contacting Astaroth, who's mm. um, a Judeo-Christian demon based on the Sumerian deity Ishtar. The fact that there's this demonology going on. Um, one thing that I wasn't too sure about was the fact that the movie depicts the Jewish population of Prague uh, referring to Jehovah. Yeah, we had kind of a discussion about that during the movie. Yeah, and the the thing about the use of that name is Jehovah is a English pronunciation of the Latin name Yehoah, which itself is like a Latin attempt to transcribe the name of God. And in Jewish scripture, the name of God is written without the vowel sounds as just a four-letter word called the tetragrammation. We don't really know how to say it because in Jewish custom, you don't say the name of God. Uh, You're not supposed to say it out loud, and there's a lot of euphemisms used around it to the point where the original pronunciation has been lost. 
And where yeowa, as a Latin word, comes from is taking the vowel sounds from Adane, which is a, a Hebrew euphemism for God, and taking those vowel sounds and inserting them between the four letters of the tetragamation. And then because Latin doesn't make a distinction between J and Y, or between V and U, you go from Yehovah to Jehovah. But either way, regardless of the, the history of the name or how it's pronounced, Jewish people, especially like Jewish religious men, would not be saying it out loud. And so seeing them do it in the film, and I mean it's a silent film, so it's, you know, it's on a title card, but it feels like what they're trying to do is avoid having the Jews refer to God as God, because I think this film was not designed for a Jewish audience. I think it was designed for, you know, a Gentile German audience, and they didn't want, they wanted to be sure that the Jews were depicted as an other, so that their God was depicted as an other, so that it was clear that, oh, we're talking about the Jewish God as opposed to the Christian God, when really that's kind of hair-splitting. Yeah, see, I totally agree that the people in this film are othered. I still don't see why... It's, it's by having them not say God and having them say Jehovah, you're explicitly saying these aren't normal people, these are these other people who worship this other thing that you don't worship. I guess I keep thinking of, like, well, it must be translated. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing certainly the film translated from German to English. Oh, I mean, like, translated from their point of view as well, right? Like, if you were writing from an identity that you aren't a part of, mm. um, and they would say a specific phrase, but you're translating that... It's like the, the Tolkien thing of, like, oh, I'm going to say Thursday, but Thursday doesn't technically exist in Lord right. of the Rings. The, the thing is, is that still doesn't make sense because, again, like, Jewish religious men would not be saying the name of God out loud. They would be saying something else. And there's, because the Bible, as we know it, is translated from Hebrew scripture, there's mm -hmm. a long history of how to translate those terms. You, <laughs> That's very true. You, you write the name of God, the Tetragrammation, as the Lord... You write God as, you know, you write Elohim as God. You write Adane as the Almighty. Like, there's already a system in place mm. to translate those things. So explicitly choosing not to use that and instead doing this other thing others them in, in much the same way that when you hear people say that, like, oh, the God of the Muslims is Allah. Yeah. Others the Muslim community. Because, like, yes, that's the word for God in Arabic, but, like, it's not... A different title. It's, yeah, it's it's not, like, the god of the Greeks is Zeus. It's, no, the god of the Muslims is God. It's just the word God is different in different languages, man. So, yeah, I think, I think that this film portrays Jews sympathetically, but I think it stereotypes them into being this mystical other of, like, weird sorcerer people that doesn't really, doesn't really help. Yeah. <laughs> what is cool is they they save themselves, really, mm -hmm. right? Like, as much as the emperor is like, oh, you saved me from, like, the ceiling crashing with your golem, I'll pardon your people. Like, the golem technically is the one who saved, caused that to happen. Mm -hmm. The Jewish people had agency. Miriam had agency. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't like... Yeah, it wasn't yeah. like the golem was the hero of the day. Yeah, I think the film's respectful. Yeah. To the Jewish community, I think it means to be doing well. 
the othering of the Jewish culture in this film doesn't come from a place of malice mm. so much as it comes from a place of what happens when you've appropriated someone else's culture for your movie exactly <laughs> so it's it's what happens when you've decided that you're going to tell a story about these people that you know nothing about other than what you know about from stereotypes and you can try and be as respectful as you like but you're probably still going to bring some of your internal bias in because you don't really know what you're talking about yeah and i think it's interesting that on the first Golem film that Vigna made, the one that was like set in modern times and was a horror film, he brought in uh, a Jewish screenwriting partner, Henrik Galen, uh, but Henrik was not involved in this film, which is the more heavily, you know, Jewish culture referencing one, and I think that shows. Do you know why he wasn't involved in this one? I think because it's 1920, so it's likely he's involved in some other productions. We're going to start seeing Henrik Galeen's name pop up kind of frequently. Oh. Uh, he wrote Nosferatu, for example. Oh, what? Really? And uh, several other films that are going to come up on our list. So I suspect he's probably busy, is what's going on. Ah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's good news. <laughs> I always like hearing when... If someone can't come back, it's not because there was a falling out. It, it's because, no, he's, he's getting paid for other things, too. Right. So you don't seem to think that this is a horror movie. I, yeah. From what I remembered of seeing it, I was kind of doubtful. And seeing it again today, I'm pretty sure it isn't. Do you disagree? I do. Awesome. Let's... <laughs> let's dive right in, hey? Let's hash it out. All right, what's your, what's your pro argument? Okay, so maybe before we do, let's just remind listeners, in case they haven't listened to the first episode, how we define a horror movie. The thing that I always keep coming back to is there are survivors, not heroes, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd, I'd say, like, we sort of identified two main characteristics. One was what you just said, that, that the characters are there to survive, not to, you know, conquer and the other is that the, the primary emotion that the film is seeking to evoke in its audience is fear. Mm. And that there's something that the film is saying you should be afraid of. And we've identified, you know, what the fear is in various past films. Right. So for me, the golem, they never really defeat the golem. Mm. Like, yeah, this kid manages to get the amulet out of him, but that just is happenstance. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the golem is this force of nature, or this, uh, the force of, uh, a force of supernatural. How, how would you say that? A force of nature? A force of supernature? A supernatural force. <laughs> a supernatural force that you can't control. Uh, like there's hints of the hubris uh, that we talked about in the before the break, as the rabbi is building the golem, and the apprentice is terrified <laughs> about, like, we're summoning a demon to get the spell? What the fuck are we doing, dude? I thought I'd just be reading passages from the Torah from memory today, and instead <laughs> we're summoning demons. <laughs> yeah, he, he looks like I'm not even supposed to be here today. Right. And I mean, it's... I think it's also ties in with, like... You know, this uncontrollable force. When even in the beginning, the golem has quite the attitude. Clearly doesn't like the apprentice and begrudgingly does what he's told to do by the apprentice. 
kind of goes along a bit more with the with the rabbi, but is not he's doing what he's told because there's like nothing else to do, right? Like mm. it's not because he's actually controlled. Yeah, there's there's a certain sense of sassiness the whole time. Yeah. All thanks to Wagner's great expressions. I think that I would be willing to say that the Golem is certainly a monster movie, but I would argue that a monster movie and a horror movie are not always equivalent. Because for me, like, I mean, the stuff that's horror in this film is, you know, where this film connects to, like, it's got some scenes that are certainly spooky scenes. The Astroth scene has some spooky, and the, the scene where the golem goes on his rampage has a lot of shocking suspense. But, like, that's, you know, the, the atmosphere of those scenes do not permeate the entire film, and I think that the content of, like, one half-chapter of a five-chapter narrative does not justify the categorization of the whole film. I think... You know, where this movie connects to horror the strongest, where you see the parallels, is obviously Frankenstein. I think you've got the artificial being who runs amok, who wants to stay alive, who wants to be loved. You know, we see scenes where he reaches out to people and they turn away in fear and disgust of him. He plays with children. The scene with the kids at the end of this movie always reminds me of the the scene in the, the Karloff Frankenstein. Yeah. But I think the, the, the thing about the golem is, like, he lacks Frankenstein's kind of macabre elements. He's not assembled from corpse parts. And the movie doesn't have that spooky Halloween atmosphere all the way through it that Frankenstein does. Even when he's kind of being murderous and menacing, the only person he kills is the one he was kind of set upon by the apprentice. Well, no, we see people dead in the streets. Are they dead or are they just hurt? Uh, both. Okay. Like, there's one guy who, like, is clearly, like, knocked out and comes to. But, like, right. there were more than just that d- one dude. Okay. So, the, the the point that I'm getting to about monster films not being 100% equivalent to horror films is I think, even though this film has a lot of overlap with Frankenstein, I think structurally, as a story, it reminds me more of King Kong. And King Kong is not a horror film. Like, yeah, clearly, right? But King Kong, again, is a story where we've got, it's an exotic fantasy story where we've got this monster who we try to bring under our control and then, like, goes on a rampage in the climax and steals the girl and goes across town and causes a big fuss and then gets brought down, right? And I sort of saw the golem's rampages fitting more into that of, like, being a a big action climax that sets the town on fire than anything that was really kind of like a a horror movie ending. I think that there's the scene where he does turn against The Apprentice kind of has that vibe to it, but I don't know if it goes all the way there. In the same sense that, like, there's moments in King Kong that might make you shriek in terror, but it's not a horror film. And that's that's sort of where I'm at with The Golem. I think it's, it's definitely a monster movie, but I... I'm not 100% sure if that makes it a horror film or not. I guess if it was to be a horror film, we would need to identify what the fear is. And I think that comes down to who the movie is for. If if the movie sure. <laughs> if the movie is saying fear of the Jewish mystical supernatural elements that they can't even control, then it would be a horror movie. But because the movie does try to be respectful... Yeah, because it's told from the Jewish point of view. Like, 
that's the thing, is, like, if this was a movie where... Maybe from the Emperor's point of view, right? right? Where, like, this monster just comes out of nowhere, yeah, saves the day, but then sets the town on fire? Yeah, like, if the ending of the movie had been the golem attacking the Gentiles, because the Gentiles had wronged the Jews, this would be a horror film. Yeah. Because... You know, the idea that the victims of the monster are often people who deserve it is kind of a running thing in horror films, Yeah. right? So I think that would be one thing, you know. But instead, he kind of turns on these people who we are sympathetic with, who the film's been sympathetic with the whole time. And he doesn't even really turn on them to a huge degree because he, he doesn't kill Miriam. He just kind of sets her down in a bale of hay and is like, cool, you're fine. The only named character he kills is this Gentile who really should have known better than to, like, go around, like, messing around with, like, the rabbi's daughter. So, like, yeah, I think you're right. Like, if the film had been more anti-Semitic than it is, it would be a horror film. But it's not. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it wouldn't even need to be more anti-Semitic. It would need to have... Unless you mean, like, the Emperor being more of a dick than, like, a pr- seems like a pretty reasonable guy. Yeah. Like, he stays to his word that, oh, you saved me from my ceiling collapsing. I feel like because this movie was made by a Gentile creator, like, the thing that comes up is that the central conflict of the Golem of Prague myth, which feels like it's a Jew versus Gentile conflict doesn't really matter in this movie that much. Like, if you just were told the story of the Golem of Prague, it's like, oh yeah, a rabbi made, like, an artificial being to protect the ghetto from an anti-Jewish mob or decree or order or whatever. You'd be like, cool, so this is like a a Jewish oppression story. And in this movie, the emperor's like, yeah, Jews, you gotta get out of here. And the rabbi's like, man, come on, we're friends. And the emperor's like, ah, yeah, you're right, sorry, I forgot. (laughs) And then, like, they go home, and then the rest of the story is, like, the golem going on a rampage because, like, his dad's daughter, like, was getting it on with this other dude. Like, it's not quite there, man. Yeah. Like, it's not a horror movie because it's just a story about this Jewish fable. Yeah. Right? And it's not presented in a way that emphasizes, like, there's there's horror aspects to this movie, but they're not emphasized. Do you think it's because it's supposed to be a prequel... And so the golem needs to survive at the end? Like, it can't be just dismantled? Right. What's almost interesting here is the opportunity to talk about series that change genre mm. from installment to installment. Like, I, I think, you know, this is a prequel to a horror movie, and the horror movie is, is lost. It's, it's gone. The prints are missing or whatever. So it's a prequel to a horror movie, but that doesn't necessarily make it a horror movie. In the same way that, like, Aliens is a sequel to a horror movie. It's not necessarily a horror movie itself. Or Army of Darkness is a sequel to Evil Dead, but, like, Army of Darkness is not the same genre as Evil Dead. Yeah. So then the question becomes, is it fair to rank this movie on the list? I mean, we have those shorts on here, which we agreed that they were more fantasy than horror when we were watching them. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, to be fair, uh, like, we included them because they were, like, the beginnings of the genre. Yeah, right? like, there there wasn't a lot of genre codification yet, right? And this is, what, like, 15 years later? 20 years later? Yeah, this is, like, 25 years after the earliest of those. 
So do you think the genre of horror has developed such that it has clearer set boundaries now than it did, well, obviously since it did then, but... I mean, I think the genre of horror at this point is still developing. I think it's not quite a thing yet. I think if you were in the 20s, no one would be talking about horror films. I think that the the contemporary critical appreciation linked this movie more to Cabinet of Dr. Caligari on the basis of stylistics, on the basis of the expressionist style, more than... origin. Yeah, exactly. More than the content. I think people were probably still talking about mystery thrillers and supernatural thrillers and ghost stories more than they were horror as a as a codified genre Mm. so i think in contemporary terms those rules don't really exist yet but i'll put you another question okay so we've watched all these movies right this is you know a german film from this time period does this feel like the same kind of movie as caligari or genuina Like, does this movie feel like those movies, or does this feel like a different kind of story? I think it's very interesting to think about Student of Prague and this film, because, well, obviously, Paul Wegner is Yeah, they've got the Paul Wegner connection. And with Student of Prague, it's like, he knows, he clearly knows how to do a, uh, I'll say monster movie, because you know, yeah, the stu- doppelganger can be seen as a monster. Yeah, the student of Prague was scary, man. Yeah. Student of Prague was legit scary. I couldn't identify moments in this film that even were really, like, intended to be scary. Like, yeah. this movie didn't have scares, but it, it did have suspense. But, like, the suspense of the golem in this film is, like, the suspense of, like, the Terminator. It's <laughs> not quite the same thing as, like the suspense of a horror. Do you think the fact that it didn't have these really, truly scary moments is because this is Wagner partnering up with a studio rather than doing an independent film? No, because, I mean, Caligari was a studio film. Yeah, okay. I mean, I think this movie is horror by association, but mm. I don't think it's truly horror. And um, I think if we if we were to try and rank it against films on the list... Like, if you want to rank it on the list, I'm cool to rank it on the list, but I think that it will rank poorly, because even though it's one of the most well-made movies we've seen up to this point, looking at it from this genre, and I don't know if it's really fair to even look at it from the point of view of this genre, it fails. Yeah, I I do feel like we should rank it on the list, though, because, like, kind of using it as representative of the 1915 Golem, which is lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that that's not really fair. I don't know. I do feel like it should be included because we also still have those shorts, which, like, I'm sure 50 episodes from now will be at the very bottom. Sure. But we considered those. We should consider this one as well. Okay. I just, I, I want to kind of go on record feeling like I, I don't think it meets the qualifications necessary to be considered a horror film. And I think that thereby, you know, even though it's a very well-made film, on a list of horror films, it should rank fairly low. It's not really doing the thing. So I, I will say that based on the characteristics we identified in the film, I do think it counts as a monster movie. Yeah. And that gets it halfway to being a horror film. <laughs> Um, but not all the way. So, 
did you have any starting thoughts on where this belongs? Well, because my justification for this being included on the list is because of the early shorts that we reviewed, um, I would like to know where the top few of those land. Sure. So we have a, a dividing line between the features and the shorts right now. Okay. So sitting at number 10 on the list is the 1913 Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde that starred King Baggett, okay. where we identified that the movie was not scary and was really goofy and was totally boring. But we did identify that it was at least trying to talk about a fear, which yeah. was the fear of loss of self-control and so on. So that's at number 10. Okay. The So below it at number 11 is The Infernal Cauldron uh, mm. by Melies, which was the hand-painted one. Yeah. At the very least, this film should go above that because yes. we we had... The Infernal Cauldron so high because the special effects were so amazing, and I think... This, this is a better be... produced film. This is, yeah, this yeah. absolutely goes above The Infernal Cauldron. So the question is just, does it deserve to go above King Baggett's Jekyll and Hyde? What's number nine? Above that is Avenging Conscience by Griffith, which we also identified as not really being much of a horror film, and more of just a grab bag of stuff that Griffith wanted to throw into <laughs> a movie. But we sort of allowed it onto the list and so on because, like, it is based on Edgar Allan Poe and had those elements. What's number eight? That would be the 1912 Jekyll and Hyde that starred James Cruz, which was the shorter one, the 11-minute one, that we liked better. Right. All right, I feel like the Golem could replace the Avenging Conscience for number nine. Oh, you, so you're saying it should go above Avenging Conscience? Yes. You'd rank it higher than that. Yes. Because it's like, remember how rambly and whatever was going on with Avenging Conscience? We were considering putting a movie that has, like, an actual monster and amazing special effects and, like, is, is fairly tight. Like, yeah, it's a little long sometimes, but it's fairly tight. We're considering putting that below Avenging Conscience, which has fucking Moses, Jesus, and Pan mixed in with Edgar Allan Poe. Yeah, and demons. Don't forget the demons. Demons and bugs. Right. Oh, and like weird subplots that go nowhere. Yeah. So here's my only thing. The Golem is definitely a better movie. Yeah. Hands down. There were moments in Avenging Conscience that spooked me. Like when that hand comes out of the the, the fireplace, chimney. the chimney, and like when the ghost shows up, those few. So the question is, do the few moments with the ghost in Avenging Conscience outweigh the few moments in the Golem where the Golem's on a rampage? Because basically, we're looking at two movies that are horror films for like five minutes of their runtime <laughs> top each. Is the bits that are horror in, in Avenging Conscience better than the bits that are horror in The Golem? The Avenging Conscience also has... Oh, I don't want to justify its spot, but it has that, that sequence of the detective hounding at yeah, uh, the yeah, dude. Yeah, the Edgar Allan Poe sequence. Yeah. Which was really well done. Yeah. Is that scene better than the Astaroth scene? Is that scene better than... The scene where the golem decides fuck everybody and tosses a dude off a tall tower. <laughs> I love it, though. Alright, so at least, at least the Avenging Conscience 
shows people committing suicide mm-hmm. and like this awful, awful stuff. Fucking like ants eating wasps and shit. Like Avenging Conscience has a bullshit dream. It was all a dream ending. But before that, it does go for it. Yeah. Uh, all right. So is it better than King Baggett's Jekyll and Hyde? See, this is why I was unsure about, like, fairly ranking it, right? Because, like, King Baggett's Jekyll and Hyde is a garbage movie. <laughs> but, like, it's trying to be a horror film. I don't think this ever was. Like, 100% it's better than Infernal Cauldron. I will 100% give you that. Any higher than that on the list, like, I need a good argument. So far, the arguments are that King Baggett's Jekyll and Hyde was a garbage movie, and The Avenging Conscience was a garbage movie, and this is a good movie, and I will agree with that. But where I'm struggling is, like, can we articulate what makes The Golem a better horror film? You had to really convince me that King Baggett's Jekyll and Hyde was a horror movie, and you had to, and you admitted that you had to stretch it to be alcoholism. Mm -hmm. Which it's like, once you say that, it's like, yeah, I can see that. And given the, like time frame of, like, the Prohibition movement and stuff, and so it was like, if you have to make it, if you have to stretch things to make it a horror movie, mm-hmm. but the we're same st- way that I'm stretching with this one. <laughs> okay, as long as you acknowledge that. Yeah, like, we're both, we're both stretching our respective preferred I, picks. I totally agree that, like, it belongs in this area of the list. It's just, like, what can you articulate that makes The Golem above these films? It succeeds at a monster movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. Baggett's Jekyll and Hyde doesn't really succeed at anything. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so so let's... Okay, so it's above Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. Is it above Avenging Conscience? I don't think so, because you're totally right in that... While it doesn't commit, it cops out at the very end. It at least shows things. The worst thing we see in the golem is when he throws Florian off the roof. Right, and that's like an action beat, right? Like Gaston tumbling off the roof at the end of Beauty and the Beast doesn't make that a horror film, even though he's got skulls in his pupils. Like, <laughs> I think, I, I, you know, I want to be clear here. I think the golem is a better film than Avenging Conscience. But Avenging Conscience is trying to be a horror movie more than this is. So I think it goes, uh, Golem goes below. I am okay with that. Okay. So coming in at number 10 is Der Golem vai er in die Welt kam from 1920 by Paul Wegener. And if you have a problem with (laughs) Der Golem being on the list or you have a problem with it being that high or that low, you can always submit an appeal to Scream Scene at... ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com or you can find us on Tumblr and go to our uh, ask box. Our Tumblr is ScreamScenePodcast.tumblr.com If you have discovered a print of the 1915 Golem oh my and... God want to let us know so that we can watch it, you can also get in touch with us through those channels as well. Yes, please do. I would love to see it. You can also go to the Tumblr to check out the full list, Mm -hmm. a playlist of the films that we have watched, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as links to our other episodes on SoundCloud. 
yeah, and if you want to subscribe, you can do that through iTunes, and we would love it if you would leave us a review. Reviews are how podcasts are most easily bumped up to be found on iTunes, so they are important. You can also get in touch with us at at underscore scream scene if you want to tweet at us. Is that it? That's so, it. That's all our places? Yeah. Cool. High five. Yay. I convinced you about the golem. I'm proud of myself. <laughs> what are we watching next week? Next week we are watching from Sweden, Korkarlen, or as it's known in English, The Phantom Carriage. Oh, I've seen this. It's real good. Yeah. Sweet. Uh, so we are excited. We will see you then, creatures of the night. 